If you would turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we are in the middle of a series where we're looking at um, the signs in the Old Testament that point to Christ. And we've considered some of the um, biblical themes. Uh, last time, uh, Wayne Veenster uh, looked at the idea of atonement, the day of atonement, and how that pointed to Christ. We thought about the, the theme of redemption. Well, we're going to look at an, uh, an object to, uh, this evening, the object being the temple, the tabernacle, and seeing how that points us uh, to Christ so that we get above a full picture of who Jesus really is. The Old Testament is, is um, the, the way that we can understand what, what Jesus uh, really has come to accomplish. And so we're going to look at Exodus 25. I'm going to begin by just reading verses 1 through 9. If you want to follow along, verses 1 through 9. Just historical context, Israel is in... Um, the wilderness, they've left Egypt. Moses had led them out of Egypt. They're, they've come through the Red Sea about three months ago. And now they're at Mount Sinai. God is speaking to Moses and giving them, uh, giving Moses instructions uh, for uh, the people. And here we're, he's going to begin to give them instructions for the tabernacle. And those instructions will continue on. Let's pick it up at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they uh, take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then if you just keep reading, you'll notice the first uh, instructions God gives is for the Ark of the Covenant. We're not going to take time to, to read all that, but that's, in a sense, the most important piece of the tabernacle. That is some, uh, looks like a box, in a sense. It's, got a, it's made of pure gold. The, the mercy seat is made of pure gold. And there are cherubim, angels with wings, uh, on top of that uh, box. And it is said that God dwelt there between the cherubim. It's the most holy piece in the whole tabernacle. But uh, so that's verses uh, 10 through 22. And if you turn the, tape, uh, turn the page, at least in my Bible, then you have the table for bread, uh, verses 23 through 30. That would sit in the uh, tabernacle. Then the golden lampstand, that would be in the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle itself, chapter 26. And every detail God lays out, how they make the frames and the bases, how they make the curtains, how they make the coverings. Uh, and then the bronze altar, which would be out in the courtyard. And uh, God gives instructions about the court itself there in verses in chapter 27, and then the oil for the lamp, and then onto the priest's garments. And you'll just, uh, if you've read through this recently, you'll, you'll just see incredibly detailed instructions. Uh, God tells Moses what building material to use, exactly the dimensions for all the different um, articles and instruments, uh, very precise details concerning uh, the decorations, uh, how things are to be made, what they're supposed to look like. There's nothing left here for Moses to sort of figure out or for craftsmen just to use their artistic imagination. This... Um, 
when, when God says, I want you to build it exactly as I show you, that's precisely what he means. And, and then he shows Moses exactly how he wants it done. It's an incredible amount of detail. Uh, I've said before, this is a portion of scripture that only a, an engineer could love. Uh, because it's almost like a, a drawing, schematic of, of, a, of the building. So the question we want to ask is, is why, why all the detail? Why so specific? Well, let me just give a couple of reasons. I'm sure there are more. One reason is because it's so important. This, this is not just a construction project. This is a story. It's, 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 a, drum, it's a drama. It's, it's a love story in a sense, if you would. It's God coming to be with his people, to come and, and, and dwell with his bride. This is the uh, Christmas story of the Old Testament. God coming near. If you remember, back when the world began, God makes Adam and Eve, and they're beautiful in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, and they're put in this beautiful garden of God, which is a replica, in a sense, of God's own uh, dwelling place in heaven, and God walks with them and communes with them in the Garden of Eden. Everything is as it ought to be, and then Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin against him, and, and they're expelled from the garden. But, um, and, and there are two f- angels placed there at the gate so that they, can't, they aren't allowed back in because God is a consuming fire, and they in their sin can't dwell with him. Well, that happened a long time ago. Now God is coming, you see, and, and he's re-engaging in, in a very specific, tangible way. God is saying um, that the, the expelling from the garden was not forever. God coming near, taking the initiative. And so this is, uh, this is a, a, a story that um, it's, it's at the center of God's purposes for, for man, for all creation. And because it's so important, the details matter. If you remember when there's a royal wedding. Americans love royal weddings, uh, I suppose as much as the Brits do. And uh, when there's a royal wedding, every detail matters. And countless hours are spent getting every detail right. Why? Uh, because it's the royal wedding. If it was your wedding or my wedding, we pay attention to the basic things, but we just sort of figure it'll work out. It's not how you do a royal wedding. Uh, it's not how God does his engagement with his people. The details matter. And they matter specifically because God's telling a story in it. He's pointing us to his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Dehan says that the tabernacle is the most detailed revelation of Jesus and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. And so what I'd like to do tonight is just um, an overview. What does the tabernacle mean? What is it saying? What, is, uh, what does God want us to see in this Old Testament scripture? And we'll start by just asking, what would the Israelites have seen? If you had uh, been in, in the camp, remember Israel is out in the wilderness, they're at Mount Sinai, they're living in tents, and, and uh, if, if once, once the tabernacle was, was set up, it, you, would have, you would have come to the tabernacle, and the first thing you would see was a, was a cloth fence, about eight feet high, uh, and, and it is uh, rectangular, and it's, uh, in, in, inside is the tent, but there's only one way in, there's a gate on the east end, of the, uh, of the court area, and um, 
then if you walked through, you would, you would be in a large area where it's mostly uh, empty, except there would be a, a large altar for sacrifice made specifically according to God's commands. And then, and then a little closer to the tabernacle would be a laver with water in it, and that's for ceremonial cleansing. And except for maybe some tables where animals would be slaughtered, that's all you would see in the courtyard. And then if you go into the tabernacle itself, which of course no Israelite ever could, uh, but, if, but if you would, were able to, you would see the lampstand, seven uh, lampstands. You would see the table for bread, and you would see the uh, altar for incense. That would be in the, in, the, in the large room, the first room that you entered. And then there would be this beautiful curtain, and behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the whole thing. It is all very visual, very graphic. If you walked into the courtyard, the fire under the, uh, uh, the altar was never allowed to go out. And sacrifices were being made morning and evening every day. And so you, have, you would have the sights, the smells, the sounds of, of sacrifices uh, being offered before God. It's visually very graphic. If you're a common Israelite and, and you're in the, the temple, uh, in the tabernacle courtyard, when you look at the tabernacle itself, it doesn't look like much. It's, it's very drab. The outside is made of the um, skin of sea cows. So it's, it's, it's gray. It's not impressive. If you would have been able to tour the world at that day and look at the temples that uh, the surrounding nations built to their pagan gods, they, they would have been the most impressive buildings you'd ever seen. They were magnificent. They were huge. They had pillars and, and towers and, and, and vast open areas and courtyards. They were beautiful buildings. This was not a beautiful uh, building at all on the outside. It's very drab and gray. John Davis says, from a purely aesthetic point of view, the tabernacle could not be considered a thing of beauty, at least not from the outside. Now, the inside was something else altogether. The inside was incredibly beautiful. And God gives instructions of, of all the curtains, and the walls are made of this beautifully crafted uh, blue cloth, and, and there's purple and scarlet woven in, and images of, of cherubim um, and with, with, their, with their wings, and the, uh, the, all the furnishings are pure gold. There would be, you would, you would step into the tabernacle and just sense the holiness of it, the beauty of it, the splendor of it. But, of course, if you're a common Israelite, you'd never get in there. Uh, the, the common Israelite would never, ever see the beauty of the tabernacle. Only the priests get to see it. And, um, and that at certain times, and, and in fact, in the most holy place, the, 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 the little room at the back of the tabernacle, only one priest, once in his life, once a year, uh, he would enter in. And, and you could only do it once uh, in your entire life. Uh, so the tent is beautiful, but all the beauty is inside. The, uh, the beauty is hidden in that sense from the eyes of God's people. And that was not a mistake. God did that on purpose. He did not want the Israelites to be able to see inside the tabernacle. Riken says, as Israelites thought about the tabernacle and considered its meaning, they were con confronted with a hard reality. Most, the vast majority of them, were never allowed to go inside. They knew God had his dwelling there, but they never had a chance to see past the door, 
much less go inside and meet with him. Why would God do that? Well, because God is telling us something about himself. Uh, this is his house, and he's communicating something very important that, that Israel needs to know. They need to understand that God is unique in his character. He is not like pagan gods. Uh, Israel is coming out of Egypt, a pagan nation, and they have sort of imbibed many of the pagan principles and ideas, the ways of thinking that, that would be common to the Egyptians. And, and they need re-education. They need to be taught what this God, their God, is actually like. And so what God does, he, he uh, constructs this tabernacle or gives instructions for it so that it, it, it emphasizes the holiness, the otherness, the separateness in that sense of the beauty of God. God is near them, but access to him is, is, is not easy. You see, one of the devastating results of the fall is, is it clouds our, our mind. So when it comes to religious things, we almost instinctively get it wrong all the time. And we, we make God into our image. If you would ask the American people, uh, tell me, what do you think of when you think about God? You would get all sorts of answers. Um, but you would not hear many people say, um, he's holy, awesome, beautiful, completely unlike us. You'd hear he's loving, he's kind, or, or people would, well, I like to think of God as. And we live in this culture, a culture that's increasingly becoming a, a pagan culture, and, and we feel free to sort of think of God as we like. Well, that's exactly what God is, is trying to um, teach the Israelites. You need to learn who I, who I really am. And so what he does is he erects a series of barriers. The tabernacle is a series of barriers. The first barrier being the courtyard itself and the, and the gate that stands there. Um, if you're a Gentile, you're never allowed into the courtyard. If you are unclean for any reason, good or bad, you're not allowed into the courtyard. It is a barrier to keep unclean people, ceremonially unclean people, away from God. Not because God would be polluted, but that the people themselves would be in danger. That's the lesson. So there you have the outside a barrier. Then the next barrier is the covering uh, to the tent itself. No Israelite gets in, only the priests. Uh, and then you have the next barrier, the barrier separating the holy place from the most holy place where the ark of God is. It's a curtain that's four inches thick, most likely. And there's the cherubim are woven into that, that curtain representing the cherubim who guard the throne room of God, just like the cherubim who were at the east gate of the Garden of Eden. The message to the Israelites is um, that God is coming to dwell with them, but it's dicey. It's, it's not a simple, easy thing. God is coming to dwell with them, but, but the God that's coming to them is, is a God who's, in, in the truest sense of the word, terrifying. So, so Moses leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And it says God is going to show up, and so the, the, the people are, are looking forward to that. And then when God does show up, what, what happens? Well, the, the mountain is smoking, and, and there's fire and thunder and trumpets, and the people are terrified. 
They had not imagined the godness of God. They had not imagined that, that God would be so magnificent, so overwhelming in his holiness. That they're, they're frightened, they're terrified of him because they sense their creatureliness, that they're made of dust, and they sense that their sinfulness, that this God is not safe in any sense of the term. And so God is, is letting them know this, uh, that, that there is only one way into his presence, and that is through the way of sacrifice, and that is the way of, through his priests. And, and God, you see, is he's teaching them. God is not, um, he's the one taking the initiative. He's the one saying, I'm coming to dwell with them, uh, with you, but it, but, but it has to be on his terms. And, and the first thing that has to happen is they need to understand what he's like. One of the, one of the greatest obstacles and barriers to um, true faith and, and vibrant joy as a Christian is the common tendency that we have to think less of God than he is. Uh, I was, uh, R.C. Sproul, as you know, passed away this, this past week and uh, my brother was telling me about a, uh, a video clip that he'd seen and I was able to see it as well of R.C. Sproul at a conference uh, maybe 10 years ago uh, and there, there's a panel up front and they're, at, they're, they're answering questions from the audience and, and someone asked the question, uh, since God is so loving and patient with, um, why is it that when Adam and Eve sinned, fell into sin, why was the result in God's response so severe and long-lasting? So that was the question. If God is so merciful and loving and patient, why is his response to Adam and Eve's sin so severe and, and long-lasting? And... And R.C. said, um, time out. He said, too severe? Do you know what you're saying? He said, Adam, this creature from the dirt, defied the everlasting holy God when God had done nothing but bless him, placed him in the garden, and God had had clearly told him, on the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And then this, this creature from the dirt defies God, and in fact, he does not die. God graciously come, clothes him in mercy, promises a Savior. The, the, the fullest um, effect of the curse falls on the serpent, and the son whom he's going to send So R.C. says, too severe? And, and then it was, it was evident he was angry. And, he, and he, he yells out, what's wrong with you people? And the, and, and, the, and the audience laughed. And he says, I'm serious. What's wrong with you? We don't understand the godness of God. We don't understand the holiness of God. It's not possible to ask a question like this without understanding, without misunderstanding what God is really like. See, God wants us to know what he's actually like. 
for our salvation. You, you can't, you see, you'll be lost if you don't know what God is like. If you worship a God that you make up in your own mind. If, if the God that you believe in is not the biblical thrice holy God. You'll, you'll never come to real salvation because the Jesus that you believe in then will be a Jesus who's accomplishing something other than what this Jesus came to accomplish. So God places the tabernacle right in the middle of the tent and there's fire and there's smoke. And, and just like God said to Moses at the burning bush, stop, don't come any closer. The ground you are standing on is holy ground. God comes in the middle of the camp and he says, don't come any closer. I'm not a pagan God where you just uh, sort of run in, run out, get what you need and get on your way. I'm holy, 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 a consuming fire of everything that is impure. So God wants the Israelites to understand that their sin, which is the reason Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in the first place, the sin has separated us from God and his character will not allow him to simply overlook. It will not allow him to simply let bygones be bygones. A rebel, rebellion against God and sin against his holy character must be dealt with for, because God is God. And yet, not only does the tabernacle reveal his character, it reveals his desire. This God, this holy, holy, holy God desires communion and fellowship with people. He did not come near them simply to terrify them. He came near them because he desired to be in communion with them and to bring them into communion with himself. In some sense, right, the Israelites might have thought when they see the smoke and the fire and the judgment and the trumpet blast, they, see the, they, they sense the truth about God, they maybe could have wished, Lord, why don't you just go back to heaven and we'll just do our thing here and you, you be in the heavens. Just, just leave us be. Well, that, of course, is to wish for hell. Because that's exactly what hell will be. Where God will be separate and he will just leave people be. And the only sense they'll have of God is, is judgment and wrath and the absence of his glory. See, God comes because he loves them and he desires to commune with them. And the whole point of Exodus is that God is going to bring them, to his, his bride, out of Egypt and into a land that he's promised to them. And he's going to dwell with them there. And here God takes the initiative because this is his heart's desire. And the tabernacle is concrete evidence of God's commitment to dwell with sinners. God's uh, commitment to, to, to put his name on them and take them to be his very own. It's tangible evidence. Every day, an Israelite, no matter what was going on, no matter what trials they were experiencing... Anytime they ask the question, is God with us? Is God for us? Does God love us? Does he care for us? All they needed to do was look to the tabernacle and see that God was there. On his own initiative, by his own doing, that God really was with them and God was really for them. And as a, um, one of the things that you'll, if you study the tabernacle, one of the fascinating things is uh, that it really is a little miniature replica of the Garden of Eden. The, um, the, the gate of the tabernacle uh, faces the east by God's command, exactly like the entrance into the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and, and the, the cherubim, if you remember, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they were, they were um, removed from the Garden of Eden 
through the eastern gate and the uh, cherubim were placed there with flaming swords. But now you see, uh, the Israelites are being invited to come back. The, the cherubim, in a sense, have, have been set aside. There's, there's a way for the Israelites to come back into the presence of God. So when, when an Israelite enters those eastern gates, he's reversing a guilty Adam's way out. Adam was forced to head east. Israel can now turn west and come back home. It, it's the story of the prodigal son in the Old Testament. The son retracing his steps, the, the guilty son. And at the father's initiative and, and invitation, the son comes back home. And this, of course, is, is exactly what the gospel is about. Because the tabernacle is pointing us to Jesus in every way. Exodus 25, 26, 27, you see the magnificence of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because there in the incarnation, the thrice holy God in his holiness comes and dwells with us in our own flesh and blood. That's what John uh, speaks of in his gospel. The word became flesh. The word that was with God, the word that was God, has, has, has enfleshed himself, uh, our blood and, and our bone. And we've seen his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, most people, when they looked at Jesus, as most people looking at the tabernacle, were not impressed. Jesus from the outside seemed drab. There was no beauty or, or comeliness about him that we should desire him, Isaiah says in chapter 53. When you looked at Jesus, you, you, saw, you saw a Jewish man. Now, he did some amazing things, and that was interesting, but, but you see, for most people, they didn't see the glory. They didn't see the beauty. They never got inside. But John says we've seen it. We've seen glory. As this... In Jesus, God himself tabernacled with us. And so you see, the tabernacle and everything about it was pointing to Christ. Jesus is the outer wall. He is the gate into the tabernacle. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other entrance into the presence of God except through Jesus Christ. There's, there's, uh, there's people, a dime a dozen, who, who claim to have their own ways, their own avenues, their own means, um, if Jesus is not the way for you in your communion with God, if Jesus is not what you are trusting in to, to, turn, uh, to make God a, a loving, benevolent um, Savior for you, the sinner, if Jesus isn't, isn't the, the way that you're walking to get to the Father, um, you're just fooling yourself. There is no other way. Jesus is the altar of sacrifice. You see, he's, the way has been opened specifically through the sacrifice. A, a priest, every time a priest wanted to go into the tabernacle, a sacrifice had to be made. And, and he, the high priest, would, would only enter the holy of holies with the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ is that sacrifice, isn't he? As he offers up his own body for us, and now the way has been opened through him. Jesus is the water for cleansing. Sins are washed away through him. Jesus is the lampstand uh, of God. He is the light of the world that casts out all the shadows of darkness. He's the altar of incense. The prayers of Israel would go up with the, as the incense uh, lifted up, a pleasing aroma to God. Jesus Christ prays for us. And his prayers are pleasing as he prays on our behalf. Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. He's the mercy seat where the blood would be sprinkled and, and um, 
the, the ark, I could just do a whole sermon there, and, and I have before, but, but it's so beautiful because you have in the ark, you have the law, the Ten Commandments, the covenant document there in the ark, and, and, a, and a jar of manna and, bo- and, and Aaron's rod. But the, the covenant, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments is a critical thing, I, I think. They're the, the covenant document that Israel has broken. And so um, when the blood is shed, that means that God can receive his people, though they violated the covenant. God can be gracious to them, and that's, of course, the glory of Jesus. He doesn't just, you see, fulfill the tabernacle. He he supersedes it. He's accomplished what the tabernacle pointed to. Uh, The the tabernacle pointed to the holiness of God and the the sinfulness of men, but it couldn't really bring the two together. The the tabernacle says there there has to be something needs to take place before Israel is allowed into the most holy place. And Jesus Christ, of course, comes and and crosses that chasm, bridges that great divide. So that now you and I can actually enter into the most holy place. You see, the one thing that the psalmist desired, what, he says, the one thing I ask, that, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, that specific thing the tabernacle could not provide. You weren't allowed to, in, to go in and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. The tabernacle couldn't give you that. But Jesus does. When he accomplishes once for all sacrifice, the Bible says that, that a way has been opened for us. And, and the God who commanded the curtain be built, that God now comes and rips that curtain to pieces as Jesus says it is finished. The chasm is crossed. The just, justice has been satisfied. And a holy God and sinful people are now reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you know that and believe that, not just as interesting theology or biblical a truth, but I hope you know that for your own heart and soul, that Jesus Christ has accomplished this for you, and that therefore you can have confidence that God is for you and God is with you, and anytime you, you, we, we struggle, and, and no matter what's going on in our life, if, if we ask the question, is God with us, is God for us, all we need to do is look to Jesus. Life can be incredibly difficult. Life can be incredibly heartbreaking and confusing and confounding. And we don't know why God allows some of the things that he allows. We just don't know. We can't, we can't figure it out. But, but the, the, the fundamental question is, has God left us? Has God abandoned us? Has, has God been unfaithful? All you need to do is look, look to Jesus. And you can have your answer. That if he's given us his son... His own son, whom we dearly love, when we were yet in sin, then God is with us and God is for us. One of the intriguing things that, that had never really dawned on me before, and I'll wrap with this, but as, as I was studying this, I thought, why didn't God give Moses plans for a temple? Because um, they're heading into the land of Canaan. Uh, they're, they're, they're gonna be, they could be there within a month. And, and, and very soon, they could, they could be in Jerusalem and they could establish uh, the temple, something permanent, something um, mag- magnificent, something impressive. Why a tent? You realize God never gave instructions for a temple. The temple was built sort of uh, taking the, the pattern of the tabernacle and enhancing in, the, in, in David's mind, Solomon's mind. God never gave instructions for a temple. He gave instructions for a tabernacle. Why? Well, because God knows what he's about, and God knows what's going to happen. The, the, the golden calf is going to happen. Israel is going to fail miserably. 
And, and they're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. They're not, they're not ready for a temple. They're going to, they, when they get into the land, there's going to be steps forward and there's going to be steps backward. There's going to be, there's going to be struggle and failure. They're not ready for a temple. And, and even when the temple was built, it, was still, it, wasn't tempor- it wasn't permanent. It's temporary. Because God is something far greater and better in view. There's a, they are a pilgrim people on their way to a better city whose builder and maker is God. And, and in this pilgrimage, you see, God has given them exactly what they need for the journey. The temple is made to move. The temple is made that no matter where they go, no matter where they are, God himself will be with them. And the same is true for us. Jesus has come, the fulfillment of the tabernacle, and he's come to be with us, to walk this pilgrim journey. He's, he's not abandoned us. Uh, we are a pilgrim people. We're not home yet, but we are on the way. We're on the way. And at this stage of the journey, you see, we're not ready for the temple yet. We're not ready for the fulfillment of it. We're not ready for the new heaven and the new earth. We're on our way, but on the way, God is with us. On the way, Jesus Christ promises that he's not abandoned us and he never will. The blood that he shed will always atone. The way will always be open for us to constantly go before the throne of grace. And one day, very soon, we will enter that new heaven and the new earth where we will experience all the full glory of God's promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Revelation chapter 21, one of the last chapters in the Bible. God says, or John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Friends, that's what God has promised. That's what's coming. And until we reach that place and that time, Jesus Christ is with us. God in the flesh. And has opened a way for us to go to that throne of grace to find mercy in every time of need. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have come near in a way we could never have imagined. That you came to us in all of our failure and brokenness so that, Lord, we could be brought to you one day robed in all of your glory and goodness and perfection. It's astonishing what you've promised to us in Jesus Christ. I thank you that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he's opened for us through his own flesh. And so, Lord, I pray that we would draw near with full heart and true assurance of faith, because your word is true. And Lord, I pray that tonight your people could take to themselves this wonderful truth that God is with me. God is with me in Jesus. And Father, I pray for any tonight who do not know that, that they would know that in Jesus a way has been opened and provided if they will come to Christ in faith, confessing their sin and receiving his sacrifice on their behalf. Lord, they can come home home to the Father, the God who made them, the God who knows them, the Father who's loved us with an everlasting love in Jesus. 
Father, I, I, I pray that you would do this work, that these words that we heard tonight wouldn't just be words, but we would experience the truth of them, the, the comfort and the peace that come from them as we walk this pilgrim journey on our way to our eternal home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.